Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. We are backstage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we've got a great show coming up for you. This week, we're talking about taste, and we've got a guy named Ben Jacobson who goes out into the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Oregon and harvests salt. That's right. He is a salt farmer, which apparently is a thing that we are going to find out more about. Plus, we're talking to two filmmakers who are working on a documentary about the original foodie, James Beard, born right here in Portland, Oregon, back in 1903, back when Portland was pretty much a timber town. Uh, And if all that weren't enough, uh, we have music from New Orleans legend Little Freddie King. This is radio, so you can't see his outfit, but I wish you could, because it's spectacular. And the crowd is going to go wild. Uh, Speaking of the crowd, they're out there waiting for us to do the show. So let's get going with Livewire. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Yes, it's Livewire Radio from the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. With James Beard documentary filmmakers Beth Federici and Kathleen Squires. Ocean salt miner Ben Jacobson. And music from Little Freddie King. All that, plus comedy from our troupe Monday Morning Party People. And our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. And now, the host of Livewire. Don't call it a comeback, he's been here for years. Well, like a year and a half, but that's splitting hairs. Luke Burbank! Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason Rouse. We have a great show for you this week, this hour. The subject of the show is taste. We've got a bunch of interesting guests around that topic. We've got a guy who goes out into the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Oregon and harvests sea salt that the world is going wild for. Uh, We've got a couple of filmmakers here who have a documentary coming out about James Beard, the original foodie. And it's, it's, it's apropos that we would be talking about taste and about uh, the foodie movement here in Portland, Oregon, because Portland has now become, I think we can all agree, one of the culinary destinations in the country. Um, I should actually... I, to be more accurate, it has become one of the places to wait in line to get food in... The, and really more one of the places to wait for someone to read your name from a list with a lot of other names on it so you can go inside, so you can order some of the best food in the country eventually. I was shocked the first time I drove down the street in Portland and I saw 40 or 50 people waiting outside for brunch because it was a Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock. And the weirdest part was everybody seemed completely happy to be there. Like people were drinking Stumptown coffee they brought in their own French press. And they were just like happy as a clam. It's weird. It's like in Portland, people waiting for brunch are getting like their weird S&M yayas over waiting for four hours for like the perfect artisanal buckwheat waffle that you could not have gotten down the street at the place with less of a line. I feel like, you know, um, the Fifty Shades of Grey is a book about an S&M relationship. It's set right here in Portland, and I feel like there should have been a scene where just to sort of torture her, he tells her to try to get a table at Toro Bravo on a Friday night. <laughs> a highly erotic scene. I could not figure out what was going on with the Portland food waiting situation because, again, nobody seemed that upset about it. And I always thought, boy, if this were happening in any other city, people would be livid. And then I realized the Portland food waiters have it totally figured out because what they understand is that the waiting is part of the experience here in Portland, right? Like it's a chance to catch up with your friends and get some fresh air and judge the people who brought their coffee from Starbucks Like, it's not something to be avoided. It's something to be embraced. I heard on the radio this week, somebody said, if you 
chase a rainbow, you're never going to catch it. But if you learn how to enjoy chasing things, you'll be really happy. And I thought, that perfectly encapsulates the Portland food scene. (laughs) You're never going to be at the restaurant that you're supposed to be at, and you're often going to be waiting. But if you can find a way to embrace that process, you're going to have a pretty good time. And I thought, boy, that actually has some application to my life in general, right? I mean, the Portland food scene is definitely full of some blissed-out weirdos. But I think that there's a lot to be learned from blissed-out weirdos. And we're going to do that during this show. Speaking of blissed-out weirdos, three years ago, our next guest decided he would teach himself how to harvest sea salt. And apparently he got the knack really quickly. The New York Times described his salt as having the elegance of a fine fleur de sel, the delicate crunch of maldon, and the blindingly white flakes of a Caribbean beach at noon. Some of the best chefs in the country use his hand-harvested finishing salts from the waters of Neetarts Bay, Oregon. He's here to tell us more about it. Please welcome Ben Jacobson to Livewire. Where were you when the idea hit you to become a salt farmer? I was drinking a beer on the, uh, on the beach at, uh, in Neetarts Bay, uh, fishing or trying to catch crab, and uh, was very, very unsuccessful catching crab, and so decided to bring a few gallons of water back and make salt. Because it wasn't going great with the crabs, and you were a little <laughs> tipsy. You thought, salt farming, that should work. That's got to work. <laughs> So did you fill these buckets uh, up with water with the intention of getting the salt out? And had you heard anything good about the salt in that particular part of the ocean? No. I mean, I, yes, I had gathered, gathered the water to, um, with the intent to make salt for sure. But um, it took me about three years to figure out how to make good salt. And that was really the result of trial and error. Um, you know, this works, this doesn't. And, uh, just was the first salt you made like really peppery? It was terrible. Or something? <laughs> <laughs> How do you make bad salt? It seems like it'd be salt, right? Yeah, no. You make um, bad salt to me is defined by very being very bitter, um, with a yellowish color, and having a, a astringent aftertaste. Uh, let's start with this. Take me through the process of extracting salt from a you know amount of seawater. Sure. So we um, we filter seawater and then we boil it to remove the volume, but most importantly to remove the calcium that would give, otherwise give the salt a very bitter taste. Um, and then we move it to stainless steel evaporation pans that are all custom made. And salt crystals very slowly form, fall to the bottom of the pan, then we harvest the crystals, let them drain, then dry, and then hand sort and hand pack them all. You hand sort the salt? Hand sort the salt. That sounds like one of the rings of hell. <laughs> this goes with the medium-sized grains. It, it, takes a, it takes a very, very, uh, you know, astute eye and, and um, a very and a high, obviously, attention to detail. And, and that salt sorter is also tasting the salt along the way to make sure that um, the salt is of our quality. And they have, uh, over the years now, I and mean, it's only been a few years, have just learned what they're tasting for. Did you train these people about what they're supposed to be kind of looking for? Yeah, we, I, I've trained everybody that, that works for me, and, and what we're looking for is a very clean, briny taste with no bitter aftertaste whatsoever, and that's a very deliberate um, move on our part and a very deliberate part of our process. What is the worst salt out there? You know what I mean? What is the just most, um, uh, I guess, calcium-filled Salt bitter. that you can buy in big box grocery stores, but the best salt you can get is, of course, I, I love our salt, um, but um, the best salt that you can get is going to be um, made with care and made uh, with, you know, using time, for sure. Um, do you ever find yourself like on an airplane and you ordered the food box and then just that packet of white salt and then you just, a single tear down your face and then you just salt your meal? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> This is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Ben Jacobson, a uh, salt farmer here in uh, the uh, Portland area. Um, so, uh, I, were you an oversalter as a as a kid? <laughs> I was not an oversalter. No, my mom was a great cook, um, but um, I had no formal culinary background whatsoever. Um, I am an oversalter. I salt 
my pizza, <laughs> among other things, am I in danger of burning out my taste buds or making it so that I can't, like you've brought some of this high-end yeah, yeah. salt from, uh, from the Oregon coast. Are my taste buds now, because I salt everything far too much, my taste buds ruined? Uh, no, your taste buds are not ruined at all. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, using good salt is, is the single most effective way to elevate every bite of food. And you should use good salts with every bite. And uh, there's no reason you shouldn't. Okay, so I've got this um, tub of, uh, of Jacobson salt. It says hand-harvested pure sea salt. Um, I'm going to taste this. What am, I, what am I tasting for here? You're tasting for um, clean brininess and how quick... <laughs> <laughs> Is that not how you do it? I sure, guess, that's cool. I guess this is sort of my tub now. I just dunked my tongue in it. I think I might have had a little too much. Somebody give me a slice of pizza. Okay, hold on. Sorry. I'm going to go back to just one. Like, I, I should have like that much, right? Perfect. Okay, I'm holding a little, a small crystal of salt that some poor bastard hand counted. <laughs> I'm going to taste this. You said I'm tasting for clean brininess. Correct. Okay. It's clean. <laughs> it's briny. Actually, it is. It has a little bit more of an a, a, a ocean quality to it, which Absolutely I guess is part of, the, part of the point, right? Yeah, it tastes like real, real seawater. It tastes you know, really clean and briny, and then it quickly dissipates rather than, a, rather than it tasting like a chemical. Um, so, is there anything that you will eat without salt on it? I mean, is there, like, are you one of these people who, like, salts your beer, salts your uh, ice cream? I guess I would melt it pretty quickly, but... Salted ice cream is great. Um, salted coffee can be good as well. Um, I put salt on most everything. Um, do, your, but, um, uh, do you have kids? I do not. Do you have a, a, you know, significant other? I do. She's right here. Does she have hypertension? Does everybody in your life... <laughs> Everybody in your life suffering under the... I think she has hypertension from being with me, not because of the salt. <laughs> um, I just want to, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, mention it also says on this tub, this salt does not provide iodide, a necessary nutrient, so just do whatever you want with that. What, Be warned. I've never understood that. What is this iodide thing? Because you notice that on it's, other salt packets, they list that, if it has iodide or not. What does that mean with absolutely. regards to salt? Morton Salt started putting iodide in, in salt um, after the Industrial Revolution. Um, so what was that, the point of that? To, uh, to prevent goiter. And, uh, and so Morton Salt became pervasive in American society, and um, so did iodide as a result. And um, now it's, it's kind of commonly under, misunderstood that... Iodide naturally occurs in high levels in sea salt. So then why do you have to put it on here that you don't have iodide in this salt, if that's just something that was added? And by the way, I do feel a goiter coming on, <laughs> which I blame on you. Why do you have to put that on your salt? FDA requires That's an FDA to. requirement. Yeah, exactly. You, don't, you have it in a very small print, which makes me think do. you don't think that should be an FDA requirement. <laughs> that's correct. Portland salt rebel, Ben Jacobson, everybody. <laughs> I think it's now 366 ways to cook hamburger. Welcome back to Extreme Top Chef, where we take cooking to the extreme. Our three chefs are ready to present their final dishes to Judge Dreyfus. First up, Chef Charlotte Kinlan of New York City. I've prepared grilled kangaroo livers with Irish moss, soaked in ram's blood, Spanish wedding rum, and South African butterfeet. Served alongside wild panda foie gras and duck marmalade chutney with pork vapors and bone shavings. Bone from what animal? Uh, that is camel elbow. Nice touch. Now, the consistency is a little mid-Atlantic. You served it warm and on a plate, but I think it should be served very hot or very cold or neither and inside a warmed bucket. 
the Irish moss is splendid. Makes the whole experience like being marooned in Kiev, where your shoes have been confiscated, and a woman named David is making you dance to an old Lebanese laughing record whilst wearing feathers. That's what this is like. I love it. Fifty points. Next up, Adam Waxman, the executive chef from Hayden's Place in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, hello. Yes, I've prepared a galantine of Phoenician strong ox, which is deboned and stuffed with Egyptian lavender, blood apricots, and Japanese poison mud. <laughs> I've then poached it, coated it in a glaze of elderly sheep eyes and tired almonds. It's served cold, of course, with a garnish of three cheese tahini and crunchy alligator teeth. Well, it's a wonderful presentation. What are the three cheeses? It's Roquefort, Velveeta, and Sumerian. Very, very impressive. Let me say this about the dish as a whole. It's claustrophobic. It's a holocaust of ideas. It has a first name, and it's John. It's vaguely racist. It yearns for a life of its own in a small town where it won't be judged for its past mistakes. Its flavor reminds one of an old Welsh dairy basin after a hard winter. I wonder if I shall ever feel joy again after tasting it. 60 points. Finally, Chef Daryl Sturmer from Boise, Idaho. What do you have for Judge Dreyfus, Daryl? Yeah, it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> you are a naughty boy. The bread? Regular wheat. The peanut butter? Jiff. Creamy? Chunky. The jelly? <laughs> you do not want to know. Masterful. 100 points. Daryl has done it again. He will now compete in the finals against Japanese master Kadeo Takamini in an underwater kitchen under the threat of a narwhal attack. We will see you next time. That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, and Courtney Hameister. Tonight's show is sponsored in part by New Belgium this fall, featuring their new Pale Ale Tour, a fall brewed with pale malt, caramel, and chocolate rye. It's a deep amber beer. It sounds a little like a candy bar, but who needs a stupid candy bar when you have beer? More information can be found at newbelgiumbrewing.com. We will be right back. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who asked the question, have you heard of active sitting? We know, it sounds like an oxymoron. But if you can find yourself the right task chair for work, you can actually improve your core strength and burn calories while creating a stunning PL spreadsheet. Or just watching a video of a hamster stuff 20 peanuts in its weird mouth pouch parts. Visit ErgoDepot.com to find your way to work healthy. This is Livewire from PRI, Public Radio International. We were going to write an intro for this week's musical guest, New Orleans blues legend Little Freddie King. But then we... Then we read his label's description, and so we decided we're just going to lay that on you verbatim. Please welcome the world-renowned, hard-to-kill, pistol-packing, chicken-picking, string-pulling, show-stopping, freight-train-hopping, game-cock-walking, master of electricity, king of the gut-bucket blues, connoisseur of women, His Royal Highness, Little Freddie King.
first picked up a guitar? Well, actually, I was like six years old. And were you good at it right away? Did you have a knack? No, I didn't have exactly an act. I just towed the axe up, which was my dad's guitar. I broke the strings on his guitar. Really? <laughs> Do you, what were you trying to play? So actually, after that, I had to make my own guitar to keep from getting a whooping. <laughs> you, what, how, would you, how would you make a guitar? Well, actually, I made it out of a cigar box. So tell me about that process. Uh, how, do you, how do you actually do that? So actually, uh, my mother sent me to the, to the grocery store. So they had two big shots, you know, and a big Fleawood Cadillac. Okay. Passed me up and threw the box over in the ditch. So a couple guys threw the cigar box out of their Fleetwood Cadillac. Into the ditch. Into the ditch. Right. And I was coming from the grocery store, and I happened to see them throw something out. And I didn't know what it was until I got... Close near where it was. And I see it was a cigar box. I said, wow, they done smoked the last cigar and they done got rid of the box so I can get the box and make me a guitar out of it <laughs> so I won't have to get no whoopings anymore. <laughs> I, I read that you, you started out maybe just after the cigar box playing in a lot of juke joints, but I don't think I've ever actually known what a juke joint is. What does that mean? Well, actually, a juke joint is, is a, a small bar, either part of a house or something, where they have their corn liquor and homemade homebrew and stuff like that and sit outside on the porch and uh, play the guitars and get drunk. Huh. <laughs> it's a lot like uh, this is a public radio show we're doing here. <laughs> I, 
I heard that you were actually thinking about retiring a couple of years ago. Why would you do that? Otherwise, I retired one year before Katrina. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that way I could get to do my music, you know, play my guitar. I see. You retired from your day job. Right. What were you doing for your real job? I mean, this is your real job, but what were you doing to make money before that? Oh, actually, I was an electronic technician. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So you retired from that, but the music... Now, that's your full-time gig for... Exactly. The full-time job now is my music. Do you, um, do you still have the cigar box guitar anywhere? Actually, I lost track on it. When I moved down to New Orleans, I left it behind. I guess this one works pretty well, too, though. So, little Freddie King, thank you so much. You're going to be back in a few minutes here on Livewire Radio. That was New Orleans' own little Freddie King, and you are listening to Portland's own Livewire from PRI. If you're planning to be in the area come October 4th, you got to stop by and watch us do our show. Uh, the New York Times uh, columnist Nicholas Kristoff will be here. Also, Steve Allman, author of Against Football, will stop by. One of the uh, puppet masters from Leica Studios, Georgina Haynes, will be here. Plus, music from Horse Feathers and jazz guitarist. Bill Frizzell. That's all coming up. You are listening to Livewire Radio from PRI. Brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, working with their seafood buyers, suppliers, and the industry as a whole toward healthier oceans. Because the ocean can't just show up at the gym. That would be weird. And treadmills are moist enough as it is. More information can be found about Whole Foods' seafood rating program at eataspromised.com. Nowadays, you can't swing a dead, artisanally butchered pig without hearing about localism and sustainability in the food world. But back in James Beard's day, back in the 50s and 60s, the idea was downright revolutionary. Beard was a chef who made it okay to be a food geek. And we've got two filmmakers who are making a loving documentary tribute to him called America's First Foodie, The Incredible Life of James Beard. Please welcome Beth Federici and Kathleen Squires to Livewire. Hello there, you two. Um, let's just let's. People have probably heard of James Beard because yeah. of the James Beard Award. But who actually gets that award? How many of them are given out? What does that really mean for somebody okay. who, who cooks? So the James Beard Foundation Awards are given out to chefs across the country and journalists across the country uh, who have achieved excellence in the field of culinary arts. And, and, like, how many, is this, like, the Oscars? There are, you know, seven of them a year. Are they giving them out left and right? Because I just know that when somebody wins a James Beard Award, it's a huge, huge deal. It is a huge deal. They are definitely the culinary Oscars. Let's talk a little bit about James Beard's roots in Portland, Oregon, because he's a famous guy known for food. I don't think most people know that he's from right here. What, was, what were things like for him growing up here in Portland? So he grew up, you know, he was born in 1903, he was a 13-pound baby. And anybody who has seen pictures of Jim Beard knows that that's not a surprise that he was a 13-pound baby. Um, I like to say that his mom was really America's first foodie because she ran a boarding house here in Portland um, and uh, had an amazing kitchen. I think that his mother basically had him so she would have somebody to go out and eat with. I mean, she... That's she, one reason. She really, you know, and, and he really wanted to be an actor and, and an opera singer, and he, he didn't really work out, and food became the kind of the next art that he found his calling in. How did he end up having such an impact nationally being a guy from out here on the West Coast? I mean, it would seem, you'd think the people in New York would just say, this is a 13-pound baby from Portland, <laughs> who's now an adult, failed opera singer. We're not listening to this guy. Well, I think that because of the crowds that he ran in, and, and he was an unsuccessful actor and an unsuccessful opera singer, um, but he started catering in those circles. American food, 
That was the thing. He started, um, you know, championing American product when at a time that all things were European, French, French cooking was all the rage, uh, Italian. But here was James Beard saying, hey, American food is great too. Um, he was also uh, gay, which was that a, was that widely known? Because that seemed like that would be a real professional liability I wouldn't say it was widely known, but it was definitely known within his circles. And at that time, um, you know, he was running with an artsy crowd who basically didn't care. But for the rest of America, where, you know, he had his television show in 1945, I mean, think about that, being an outwardly gay chef in 1945 might have not gone over so well. Um, (laughs) You think? And also, um, you know, in his syndicated newspaper column, but um, he was actually tossed out of Reed College for being gay. I don't know if a lot of people yeah. knew that. In 1920. Um, yeah. They're not still doing that, right? No. Uh, I don't no. Good. I mean, Thankfully, no. So we have some Reed uh, yeah. grads here. You guys <laughs> fill me in later after the show. Well, and, but I think within his, his own crowd, it was perfectly acceptable, but... Nobody really yeah. talked about it, Nobody but he was definitely not out in the media or in, right. in the wide world as we know it. You know, watching the trailer for this documentary that you guys are putting together, I, you, you see, like, when the James Beard Foundation Awards come out, you see this a picture of this kind of portly, like, bald guy, but seeing him live and talking, I mean, he just seemed like he commanded the room. I mean, he had such a force of personality. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Was his technique really good? Like, was... Was he popular, and did he have the influence he did because uh, he was really smart about food, or was it because he was just so uh, likable and gregarious? He was really, really smart about food. Not only food, uh, many, many things, all of the arts. Everybody we've interviewed has said his his base of knowledge was unbelievable. He ate with the Scoffier in the 20s in Paris. He, and he remembered every single thing he had at that dinner that he ate. He wrote down everything he ate every day of his life. Wow. So he was so like, he, like proto Weight Watchers, but he, kind of going in the, in the other direction where it was like a video game. Except, he wanted to get high score every day. Except he struggled with weight. I mean, he definitely struggled with weight and with health. And it was, it was a time when butter and salt, you know, were just abundant. And it was a difficult thing for him to deal with. But um, I think he commanded the respect of everybody because he had this incredible base of knowledge. And he worked with people like Joe Baum, opening the Four Seasons and the Rainbow Room and Windows on the World because he knew what people wanted and, and they just trusted his palate. Are there things that we see now in the world of food that you can trace directly back to him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the film, we even draw a parallel. There is a chef in New York City. Um, you all might know him as the next Iron Chef, Mark Forgione. His father was Larry Forgione, who was a direct um, mentor, mentee of James Beard's. And Mark just so feels the influence of James Beard. There are James Beard dishes on his menu. Like, give me an example of a James Beard dish and tell me it's not a hot dog. <laughs> or like, although he did like like macaroni and cheese, right? Did you guys he mention did. that? He loved simple food. Yeah. I think um, one misconception about James Beard was that he was very hoity-toity, and he was actually not. He loved a wonderful roast chicken. In fact, Beth and I were just at Expatriate Bar nearby, where they serve a James Beard onion and butter and parsley sandwich. I mean, how simple is that? <laughs> and it's delicious. It's really delicious. But the other thing about Mark Forgione is that he has the James Beard's personal cookbook collection right in his restaurant because when James Beard died, um, Larry Forgione, his father, had inherited the cookbooks and then passed them on to his son. And they're, they're there, and they have his little book plate on it and notes from him. So it's pretty amazing. You can just go there in the restaurant and look at what James Beard was you know, writing in his cookbooks. <laughs> um, speaking of cookbooks and James Beard, he had great one-liners in his cookbooks about food. And uh, we've been doing a little research, and we've actually collected some of these up for a game that we want to play, which we're calling Beardisms. <laughs> Beardisms! 
They rehearsed that for three solid weeks, <laughs> and they nailed it. Um, okay, so we've actually uh, got a, uh, another uh, special Portland uh, culinary celebrity to come up here to help us play this game. Can we get Peter Platt up here, founder and the owner of Andina Restaurant right here in Portland, Oregon? So this is how uh, this game is going to work. Peter, I am going to read you a quote. Your job is to decide and guess if it was a, a beardism or if it was somebody else. Peter, you obviously know all about food, so you don't need this prize. But maybe uh, if you win the prize, you can pass this off to one of our listeners. Uh, we've got a choice of two of my favorite cooking books uh, that you could possibly win. Uh, one is 365 Ways to Cook Hamburger. <laughs> um, and if that's not how you swing, uh, we've got a copy of uh, This Can't Be Tofu. <laughs> Yay! I like that. <laughs> um, so we'll figure out a way figure out a way to distribute. I mean, would you, would you consider using either of those in your restaurant, Peter? I, I, I confess we are not. Nah, not but I mean, all. if you won the book, would you consider it? I think it could point us in new culinary directions, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I asked the production staff to get my favorite cookbook, Microwave Cooking for One, but they were not able to locate a copy, so this is what we have. All right, here we go. Uh, here's quote number one. I believe that if I ever had to practice cannibalism, I might manage if there were enough tarragon around. Uh, I think that's a pass. A pass meaning you don't want to answer, or you mean oh, you don't uh, think? As in not a beardism. Not a beardism. Uh, Peter Platt, that is absolutely oh. wrong. That is very much a beardism. I tried to give you the thumbs up. You also must have been terrible at the $25,000 pyramid. <laughs> if you just said pass every time, you end up with zero points. Pretty, pretty much the worst contestant. And the yeah. next thing, Sally Struthers is just crying because she was your celebrity <laughs> partner. All right. 0 for 1, off to a hot start. Question number two, quote number two, is this or is this not something that was said by the famous James Beard of Portland, Oregon? The only thing that will make a souffle fall is if it knows you're afraid of it. Yes. Beardism? Yes, it absolutely is. All right, here's another one. Is this a beardism? I like rice. Rice is great if you're hungry and want 2,000 of something. You're absolutely right, Peter. <laughs> That is the late comedian Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> um, so, okay, two, two right, one wrong so far, right? What are the rules of this game, by the way? How many does Peter need? How many does Peter need to win these books? Four. Four. Okay. Peter, you've got two more questions, so you've really got to make these count, all right, buddy? All right. Or uh, this can't be tofu is making its way back to Seattle with me. You have two correct, you have one wrong. Uh, here is a, another uh, quote. Is this a beardism? Everything you see, I owe to spaghetti. No, not a beardism. You're absolutely right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is Sophia Loren. Years old. You have uh, three right, Peter, uh, uh, one wrong. So uh, this, I guess, is uh, for the uh, win, possibly. I love you like a fat kid loves cake. I... No, not a beardism. You're absolutely right. That is... That is um, uh, noted chef de cuisine, 50 Cent, <laughs> who made that joke. So, uh, One last uh, beardism, uh, just because I think it's great. A, this is something he really said. A gourmet who thinks of calories is like a tart who looks at her watch. <laughs> Which is one of my least favorite things for tarts to do while I'm spending time with them. So, Peter Platt, thank you so much for playing. You get the book.
Also a huge uh, thanks to Beth Federici and Kathleen Squires, uh, the gals behind the new James Beard documentary. That was Beth Federici and Kathleen Squires. Uh, They are the folks behind America's first foodie, The Incredible Life of James Beard. You are listening to Livewire Radio from PRI, brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, providing locally sourced burritos in an optimal burrito configuration, which is to say a tortilla tightly wrapped around other food. (laughs) More information at laughingplanet.com. This is Livewire from PRI, Public Radio International. Hello? May I speak to a Mr. Jim Tuttle, please? Uh, You got him. Mr. Tuttle, this is Ned Darling, the maitre d' from Hayden's Place, calling to confirm your reservation for this evening at 8 o'clock p.m. Yes, sir. It's our wedding anniversary. Mr. Tuttle, I have a few items to confirm in advance of your dining with us. Okay, we like chocolate cake, and we're not allergic to anything... Especially free anniversary champagne. (laughs) Hmm. This is a brief questionnaire to ensure you are a suitable customer. Uh, That is weird, but okay. Question number one. What is the difference between an amuse-bouche and a proper appetizer? Uh, An amuse-bouche is like a smaller appetizer, right? That's quite reductive, but correct. Next, I need verbal confirmation that you know what a sun choke is. A wrestling move that you use on the sun? Oh, dear. This simply shall not stand. I regret to inform you, Mr. Tuttle, I must cancel... No, 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 wait, no, wait, wait. wait. My, my My wife is way better at this stuff. Beth! Beth, hop on the extension! I'm taking a weird food quiz. Hiya, this is Beth. Beth Tuttle, which is the most erotic of the stone fruits? Ooh, maybe cherries, because they ate them in that Nine and a Half Weeks movie? Beth, your thought process intrigues and delights me. (laughs) Jim, your wife has put you squarely back in the running. (laughs) She always does. Now, Beth and Jim, you have successfully advanced to the lightning round. If you get two out of the next three questions correct, I will confirm your reservation. This is nerve-wracking. I believe in and love you, Jim. Now, quickly, on a cellular level, which is worse? Requesting a steak well done or stealing a car? Um, well, in this context, I'm going to say requesting a steak well done. You are doing it, Tuttles. You are doing it. Now, Jim, what is the only use for goose liver? Pass. Jim, you're not playing the feud. This is important. Now, pay attention, Tuttles. You have one correct answer and one incorrect. You simply must get this final one right to confirm your reservation. Please do not let me down. Oh, hold my hand, Jim. If oxtail soup were a person, who would it be? James Lipton? That is correct. We also would have accepted Pharrell. I am beside myself with joy. James and Elizabeth Tuttle, I hereby confirm your reservation for our third best table. We shall see you tonight at 8 o'clock, and a happy, happy anniversary to you both. Now, Ned, I wasn't kidding about that free champagne. And you shall have it, sir. You shall have it. That's Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, and Andrew Harris. Ladies and gentlemen, one more time, please welcome to Livewire, little Freddie King.
took my woman away from me. Yeah, I'm going down to the ground, but 
Thank you so much. Our thanks to our guests, Kathleen Squires and Beth Federici, Ben Jacobson, and little Freddie King. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Laughing Planet Cafe. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is a co-creator and executive producer of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band along with Jonathan Newsom. Paul Brainerd and musical director Ralph Huntley. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team along with Alex Falcone, guest writer Caitlin Kunkel, and me. Performers are Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House Sound by Neil Blake. Our stage manager is Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the Oregon Community Foundation, the Oregon Arts Commission with support from the National Endowment for the Arts, and Meyer Memorial Trust and listeners like you fine people. For more information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.